0: For the week of March 1st, 2017, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host. My name is Stephen Cox. Hello. On the show this week, we talk with Aaron Bretthorst and Iga Kozlovska, two of the principal members of the group Seattle Indivisible. But first, we talk with writer Sidney Brownstone of The Stranger about the legal case surrounding Daniel Ramirez Medina, the DACA recipient who is currently being detained in Tacoma. And we also discuss how the Trump administration's executive orders on immigration are affecting us here in the state. And we will also have a very brief call to action. Sydney Brownstone is a writer for Seattle's weekly paper, The Stranger, and she joins us now to talk about some recent pieces that she has written about immigration issues. Uh, Thank you for joining us, Sydney.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah. So on the 17th, you wrote a piece with fellow writer Heidi Groover about the Daniel Ramirez Medina case. Now, Hmm. uh, Ramirez Medina is the 23-year-old DACA recipient, that's Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, who was swept up and detained by ICE agents and is currently being held without cause in Tacoma. Um, His attorneys allege that immigration officials doctored a statement saying that he was involved with gangs which would violate his eligibility for DACA but they say that that's Absolutely not the case. Um, So I want to kind of know what's going on with the case currently and about immigration issues in the state in general. Uh, But before we start, there's actually a difference between DACA and the DREAM Act, uh, the most important of which is that the DREAM Act was never passed into federal law and DACA was. Can you help us understand just a few of the other differences between the two?
1: Sure. So the Dream Act has actually come up before Congress multiple times, starting in 2001. Mm -hmm. Um, But the most recent time it came up before Congress was in 2010, and this really aimed to give people who were brought to the United States as children, who went to public schools, who grew up here, who work here, um, a a pathway to citizenship, um, because uh, you know they're they're residents. They're contributing members of our society but after they graduate from high school um, these kids have often have very few options on where to go um, just because of their undocumented status so uh, in So the Senate in 2010 failed to pass um, the most recent iteration of the DREAM Act, Um, but in 2012, uh, under the Obama administration, they did pass something called Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. and it's kind of like an administrative relief. What it does is it's a temporary authorization to be here in the country. It lasts two years for these children who were brought here um, by immigrant parents. Right. And um, it includes a significant vetting process. You have to be um uh, over the age of fifteen, you have to be under the age of thirty-one. You have to have come to the United States before your sixteenth birthday. You have to have been here since two thousand seven. Um, you uh, you can't have a criminal record. You um, your everything has to be totally clean. You can't even have a significant misdemeanor, mm-hmm. um, and you have to be. Uh, determined not to pose a threat to national security or public safety. Um, So if you were gang-affiliated, yes, this would definitely jeopardize your chances of getting DACA or authorization. Um, However, being, quote-unquote, gang-affiliated isn't a crime in itself. And the basis for authorities alleging that Daniel Ramirez Medina is gang-affiliated, seems to stem largely from a tattoo that they spotted on his forearm that says La Paz, Baja, California, sir. And uh, this is is the name of the hometown where he came from. Mm. Um, It doesn't seem very— credible, to be quite honest with you.
0: And it's also my understanding that they are there is some allegation that a a document had been doctored. And actually, if you look at the document and you posted it in your article, uh, it looks pretty clearly doctored. It looks like somebody kind of went through with an eraser and just very clumsily changed it from I have no gang affiliation to I have gang affiliation. Uh, So, yeah, it's and, and in fact, his attorney Um, His lead attorney, Luis Cortez Romero, is interestingly also a DACA recipient, and he has said in interviews Mm -hmm. that he would not have taken this case uh, if he knew that uh, Ramirez Medina had any gang affiliation at all, and he is certain that he doesn't. Um, A week ago, a U.S. magistrate judge said, and this is when you had written the piece, uh, that Ramirez Medina could apply for a bond hearing before an immigration judge, but that that hearing would have to happen within a week. Uh, Here we are. It's exactly a week later. What is the latest on the case?
1: Yeah. So what's interesting is that Daniel Ramirez Medina's lawyers decided not to go to an immigration court. They decided not to go for a bond hearing. What they did instead is file another emergency motion in the federal court um, to have him released from detention. So they want this to stay out of the immigration courts entirely. Mm. Um, And we'll have to wait to see how the federal courts, the federal court rules, because at the... um, court hearing last week, uh, Chief Magistrate Judge uh, Thomas Donahue said that he needed more briefing on whether this case was even in his jurisdiction and not in immigration court.
0: So he's kind of in limbo right now as uh, this sort of push pull happens between state and federal authority. I mean, we saw a lot of the same things happen during, you know, the executive order uh, about the that's the Muslim ban. We can go ahead and call it that since that's what Rudy Giuliani called it when he was uh, referring to Donald Trump's plans for it. Uh, so I, I think that there's there's been confusion with local authorities. I'm kind of interested in what specifically you know about what our state and local officials uh, have said about the case. I do know that ICE officials have declined to meet with Mayor Ed Murray. Yes. Seattle Mayor Ed Murray.
1: Yeah. And. Um, I've also heard that they've declined to meet with our congressional delegation um, in DC, but um, I mean, all our local officials are pretty much singing the same tune that this this deeply concerns them. Um, and Mayor Murray, when he was giving his state of the city uh, speech um, earlier this week, even threatened to sue the Trump administration if um, if Trump's policies came to directly impact uh, Seattle residents in an unconstitutional way. so um, it seems like our elected officials are speaking out about this. Yeah. Um, we have yet to see where they put their whether they put their money where their mouth is. you know um, it, it, to mm. some extent, uh, our Governor Jay Inslee, has done that. He signed an executive order this week um, clarifying existing state law. That would block um, state resources from being used to one, create a religious registry, which uh, the Trump campaign threatened to do, two, um, participate in immigration raids that Donald Trump has now characterized as a military operation, and three, which is just for-
0: terrifying. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I just have to interject there. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, I mean, communities, um, communities in our state are, are petrified. They're living in, in total fear of being deported, yep. and and third, um, it would block state law enforcement from asking about a person, a person's um, immigration status. And, and what this does is the the term sanctuary city or sanctuary state has come to kind of wrap around a lot of different policies that aim to afford. Uh, undocumented immigrants some rights but it's kind of an executive uh, sanctuary state action um, and inslee said that this this should allow people to some, some sense of protection, some sense of security. They shouldn't be afraid to use state resources for fear of being deported. He also said that this would allow law enforcement to do their jobs because if you go to a crime scene and there are witnesses around, um, who are undocumented, they're not going to want to talk to you for fear that, you know, their names will get caught up, um, in, you know, the state, sure. uh, some state database and then they'll end up deported. So it's, it's a real, um, It's a real impediment to, uh, you know, getting things done here and um, allowing people access to state resources.
0: And it's actually made it something of a conservative cause or at the very least it has created bedfellows among people who are against this sort of federal action from the left. uh, Law enforcement uh, particularly in California um, and in Los Angeles in general, um, the the sheriff's union down there has been very much against these sorts of uh, ice raids and interference Mm -hmm. from the federal government for that very reason that you mentioned. So it's interesting and I use interesting sort of I get with air quotes. Uh, I'm interested to get your take on what the broader implications are in the Ramirez Medina case, um, particularly because it's still open ended right now. But there mm-hmm. are more than 17,000 DACA recipients across the state. Uh, mm-hmm. So, do we know how the decision on this case is going to affect those young recipients?
1: Yeah, well, there are 17,000 DACA recipients in the state and about 750,000 in the country. So I think this case could actually have national implications. Um, here's the reason why. So um, when we're talking about the tension between federal federal courts and others, we're talking about the tension between uh, the, the judiciary and immigration courts, which actually exist within the Department of Justice. Mm. Um, and the part of the reason why... Um, Ramirez's lawyers might not want this case to go to an immigration court, um, and I'm speculating here, is that could end in removal proceedings. And because of the rights that he's been granted under DACA, he he does have some constitutionally protected rights. And his lawyers believe that this is a constitutional issue. It should be heard in federal court. now, I mean, I mean, the jurisdictional issue is the first um, is the first step, right? But um, I mean, the if I had to put it in English and, and boil it down, this what this case is really about is whether it's okay for the executive branch, the you know Trump government, to pick people up, to scoop people up in ICE raids, even DACA holders, and attempt to deport them, um, you know dock a promise that that couldn't happen or shouldn't happen. Right. Mm. And we'll have to see whether this administration, it looks like this administration isn't living up to that promise, but we'll have to see how the courts, how the courts decide.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Can I add one more thing, actually? Of course. Um, When we say that the state is flexing muscle in this way, the other thing to keep in mind is that When you have all these orders coming down on high, like the executive order on immigration that actually tried to deputize local law enforcement to to help out with ICE raids, nothing prevents an individual officer, either in state law enforcement or local law enforcement who sympathizes with Trump's agenda, to call the ICE hotline and give them information that they're not supposed to. And that, to me, is also a big area of uncertainty and concern.
0: Yeah. So at this point, it seems like we're really relying on the courts to be the real check on power in terms of these executive orders coming down from the Trump administration.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, Sidney Brownstone, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Time now for this week's call to action, and this one is very much in line with what we just spoke about with Sydney Brownstone, and that is to support the BRIDGE Act. Now, the BRIDGE Act stands for Bar Removal of Individuals Who Dream and Grow Our Economy Act, and it is designed to protect those young people currently covered under the DREAM Act. This is a piece of bipartisan legislation, that's important, written by Lindsey Graham, Republican of South Carolina, and Dick Durbin, Democrat of Illinois, and it would provide temporary stays of deportation as well as work permits, even if DACA is discontinued. Here's the best part. The Bridge Act, unlike DACA, is a proposed law. So if it is passed, President Trump will no... Those words again. He will no longer be able to deport America's dreamers. So call both of our senators and tell them to support Senate Bill 128. Then call your representative and ask him or her to support House Resolution 496. And that is this week's Call to Action. Our guests Aaron Bretthorst and Iga Kozlowska are two of the principal figures of Seattle Indivisible, a group that, as of the release of this podcast, has over 5,000 members and is growing very rapidly. Uh, before I kick off the interview, I will just mention very quickly that we had a bit of an audio issue in the beginning, but do not worry, it doesn't last long. So we started by talking with Iga about whether or not she had any history with activism before being a part of Seattle Indivisible.
2: No, absolutely not. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I like many of us these days um, was just um, shocked by what happened in the 2016 election and 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 devastated by it. And um, and I and I was just sick and tired of seeing my values being trampled on day in day out um, by Trump and his. Um, administration. And so I decided I need to get involved. I'm, I'm not an activist. I've never done anything like this before. Um, I would read the news and stay informed and vote every four years, um, but realized that that wasn't cutting it anymore and that I needed to be more involved.
0: So what do you do professionally?
2: Um, Currently, I'm a doctoral candidate in sociology at Northwestern University in Chicago. Um, However, I do live in Seattle as of last April. Uh, my partner and I moved out here, and um, I'm close to finishing up my PhD um, and then and then looking for a, a career change. So um, I have a flexible schedule right now, which is why I can um, dedicate a lot of time and energy to Seattle Indivisible at the moment. So that's how I got started.
0: Excellent. All right. Um and I will I may ask you some sociology related questions as they pertain to everything that's going on.
2: <laughs> Please do. <laughs>
3: uh Aaron, do you have a background in activism or organizing? No, no, certainly not. You know, I I, I think just just like Iga and like many of us, my involvement with uh indivisible came about just because I felt like I, I had to do something you know yeah. I'm, a, I'm a software engineer by trade uh, currently currently unemployed I, I had the the opportunity to take a, a self-funded sabbatical let's say uh, last fall and um I'm, I'm, I'm in the tail end of that right now. Unfortunately, I'm probably going to go have to, you know, get another job again soon. Like I've, (laughs) I've literally just been living off my savings account for the last five months, but, um, I, I, I came to the, the indivisible movement, uh, by, by way, like I said, of just having to, having to do something, uh, by just being sort of shocked and dismayed at the, the, the dark turn that our country had taken last November and wanting to do whatever I could to uh, to push back against that and try to, I guess you could say, correct the try to try to correct the course of, of our country. Yeah, I um, I feel like I'm really lucky. Like I I'm a software engineer and I'm white and male and straight. And uh I, I'm afforded a lot of opportunities by that, that that so many other people in our society simply don't have. And I feel like it's it's my responsibility to to give back whatever I possibly can, to do whatever I possibly can, to try to correct this 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 dark turn that that you know we we've taken. Like yeah. just because I have have been afforded, you know, like the opportunity to uh not be questioned or questioned or judged for for my looks or for my choice of partners doesn't mean that I you know I can I can continue on as if it was still November 7th 2016
0: as much as some of us wish that we could I think a lot of us are thinking oh, I'm going to wake up at some point and <laughs> Donald Trump's not going to be president but unfortunately this is the reality that we're dealing with now so, which of you, or was it either of you? Because I know there are a few admins in the group. Uh, which of you started the group?
3: So uh, I, I did. Um, okay. So the, the story on that is, um, I, I, I wish this was, I, I wish the story of how I how I actually started it was a little more fixed in my memory. Um, but at the at the time when I did it, it wasn't like so much a you know, like the, like the first of many steps towards like creating this, this 45, hundred member and growing group. Instead, it was, it was just like, it was almost something I did on a whim. Um, so in, in mid December, I happened to, uh, to, to see an early, uh, version of the Indivisible guide on, on Twitter. Right. Indivisible guide of course is, is, you know, the the founding document of the, the Indivisible movement right. and you can find it at indivisibleguide.com. Um, uh, so I found this this Google Doc that was published by the the four original creators, and uh, read through it and felt really heartened by the idea that there were there were other people out there who not just wanted to, to push back against the 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 then incoming Trump administration but had really concrete ideas as to how we could most effectively fight back against it right and so um, I read through it and thought it would be fantastic to go join the the Seattle group and I went on Facebook and looked for a Seattle group and didn't find anything and said well okay I don't really want to start one so I'm just gonna I'm gonna set this aside for a week and uh, you know a week goes by and I run into the indivisible guide on Twitter again and I go back to Facebook to look for a Seattle indivisible group, and again, no group. Okay, um, I guess I, guess I got to start. one. Nature abhors a vacuum, Erin. Yeah. In, indeed, it does. Um, <laughs> and uh, so that was that was like December twenty first or something like that. And uh, I didn't I didn't do anything with a group until January first. Uh, I I decided that I wanted to for, I wanted to mark twenty seventeen by by asking. Uh, my friends and family to engage in some sort of like daily action uh, some sort of like easy thing that they could do every single day to push back against the the Trump administration and push back against the, the this this dark turn we've taken and um, so i started inviting a few friends on january 1st and it just sort of it snowballed from there like um, especially with the the inauguration on the 20th and then the women's march on the 21st the group went from having 20 or 30 members to 50 to 100 to 500 to a 1,000 to 2,000 almost overnight from there. And then it's just kept growing and growing and growing.
0: Yeah, there's so much momentum to it right now. Mm-hmm. It's taken on a life yeah. of its own. Absolutely. It's really incredible. Let's talk about your organizing principles uh, as they are laid out on your Facebook page. Uh, You say, quote, any action we take must directly oppose actions by the Trump administration and their Republican enablers. We have no other agenda, no other goals than protecting our country and our neighbors from this threat. Um, And so when you talk about protecting our neighbors from this threat, you are most certainly referring to uh, the actions that we have seen come down like the immigration ban and anti-immigrant policies that are starting to take hold in a very scary way um what have been the group's actions around that
2: um So, so far, well, kind of like Aaron mentioned, um, we have um, daily calls to action um, where we ask our um, Facebook group members, Seattle Indivisible members to um, make calls to their representatives, to their members of Congress on a given issue, whatever's going on at the moment on Capitol Hill. And of course, there's a lot going on. Uh, So sometimes Mm -hmm. it's quite difficult to prioritize what we should be calling about. But we We have generally one or two um, or three even um, issues that we want our members to call their um, MOCs on, and that has included um, recently um, a reaction to the ICE raids um, on undocumented immigrants. as well as the um, executive order that was signed to build the wall with Mexico, or the executive order that was signed, of course, um, which was basically the Muslim ban, right? Which was, it's basically a religious test for a particular um, religious group. Um, So, one of the core principles of Seattle Indivisible is that we believe that we have the most um, ability to put pressure on um, Trump's administration through our Democratic elected members of Congress, because they are our voice and our representation um, in D.C. And so it's these daily calls to action that ask our members of Congress to boldly stand up to and reject um, a lot of these executive orders that are coming out of Trump's administration. And
0: there's surely a lot to push back against there. You know, it's interesting in a city like Seattle uh, in particular, in Washington in general, but in Seattle in particular, I think because Uh, The two senators are fairly favorable. They're both Democrats and they're fairly favorable to the indivisible cause. And then within Seattle proper itself, you have uh, Pramila uh, Jayapal uh, on the west side and you have Adam Smith on the east side. Both are also pretty outspoken against the Trump and GOP agenda. And so a lot of what it seems like uh, we're doing and I say we and when I say we, I mean you, because I happen to live in a district with a Republican uh, Congress. Congressman, but it seems like what's going on in Seattle is a lot of sort of emboldening the senators and your particular representatives to speak out more forcefully.
3: Yeah, Aaron, would you say that's true? Absolutely. I would completely agree with that. I, I have to say that that in general, I've been I've been very impressed with our, our members of Congress. But at the same time, there's always more that that they can do. Uh, Iga can give you the specific numbers on it, but uh, Maria Cantwell in particular has has voted with the Trump agenda something like, what is it, 30 percent of the time thus far?
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I yeah, should know definitely.
3: this, but I don't. What were the instances?
2: Um so, for example, well, the cabinet nominee confirmations um, are a big part of that, and um, we know that Senator Cantwell has voted for um, several of those um, uh, of Trump's picks. For, for example, the um, I believe it was the Small Business Administration. I forget the
0: um, that would have been uh, Linda McMahon, actually, I yes. believe the, the former wrestling magnate. So, great That's choice
2: right. there. That's right. <laughs> Um As well as. some. Some others like Elaine Chao, some of the less controversial figures yeah. that we still believe are not the best qualified people for the job. And therefore, we're trying to move our members of Congress to resist Trump's agenda in any way, in every way possible. And that means not voting to confirm even some of these less um, less. Obviously, abhorrent uh, cabinet nominees.
0: Yeah, you know, I'm going to play devil's advocate, if only just to get your response on this. I get the impression that a fair number of Democrats uh, and Democrats in the Senate in particular are hoping to make it politically possible for centrist Republicans to work with them. People like John McCain, Lindsey Graham, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, uh, who may be the only people in Congress who can effectively push back against the Trump agenda. I cannot speak for her, but I get the impression that senators like Maria Cantwell are trying to keep it politically feasible for those centrist Republicans to work with them in the future. How would you respond to that? Aaron, do you have thoughts on that?
3: You know, I I get that perspective and I respect it. Um, I I understand that. Uh, our Senators believe that they they need to play this the sort of you know house of cards type long game
0: um, <laughs> that is life imitating art, man, or art imitating indeed. life one way or the other Life
3: imitating art, imitating life, imitating art again yeah no. um, and you know i I get that, but at the same time, I think it's it's also important for our our members of Congress to recognize that we are in unusual times, yeah. This is this is not a normal situation. This is not a normal administration, and uh, it is it is incumbent upon all of our incumbents to forcefully say that they will cool. they will stand opposed to the uh, anti woman, anti immigrant, white supremacist administration. And part of that is is drawing a hard line against. Uh, Anything that the Trump administration is is trying to push forward.
0: So let's talk about some of the events and rallies and those types of things that Seattle Indivisible does. Uh, You hold Trump Tuesday rallies every week. And I should mention that podcasts are not in real time. Um, But I will ask you, uh, being that this is probably about a week removed from when we are going to be airing this program. You held a Trump Tuesday rally on Tuesday. How'd it go?
2: Um, it went great. Um, so we had probably about a 100 people out there, Aaron, do you
3: think? I'd say it was uh, probably 125. It was, it was a good mm-hmm. size crowd. Good. Yeah, yeah. good thing, and that included people from
0: your group as well as people from North Seattle Indivisible and, uh, and another group, I think.
3: There were at least two other groups in in addition to the North Seattle group that were represented today.
2: Yeah, um, Edmonds, I believe, and Coopville, is that right? And and probably other groups that are not even indivisible groups, just Mm -hmm. folks that um, heard about the rally and wanted to come and show their support. Um, So this is um, the fifth one that we've done um, since the very first Tuesday of Trump's administration, and we we plan on continuing them um, for the first hundred days of, of his administration.
0: And so for people who would like to come out next Tuesday, where are they held?
2: So they're held um, just outside the um, Henry M. Jackson Federal Building, downtown Seattle, where um, our senators have their offices. Mm-hmm. So that's um, 1915 Second Avenue. And we sort of um, gather right outside the entranceway um, and um, starting at 11. And we have usually have five or so speakers who speak about how their lives are being affected by um, the Trump administration and it's hateful and unconstitutional agenda. Um, and then we um, um, go in and meet with the senators staffers um, on the first floor and air out some more questions and concerns.
0: And, and are they receptive?
2: Um, certainly, the, the staffers that we've been talking to so far are receptive in that they um, take the team out of take the time out of their day to at least meet with um, um, our rally-goers and constituents and hear our concerns. And they say that they do pass these concerns on to um, their bosses, Senators Marie and Cantwell. Um, But, you know, frankly, it's a little difficult to— get our concerns and our voices out there when when the senators aren't there themselves. So it's kind of a different um, different scenario.
0: Right. And that's ideally when you would like to see a town hall kind of situation. So I want to go back to your core principles that are stated on the Facebook page. Mm -hmm. Respectfulness and inclusion in particular. Um, Having been the administrator of my own progressive politics page, uh, I saw some pretty nasty factions break out before the election between what's called the Hillary wing and the Bernie wing. Uh, Aaron, Mm -hmm. are you seeing any of that now or are people just generally united around a common enemy?
3: At this point. You know, uh, you know, uh, we're we're seeing a lot of cohesion and unity, and I, I think that uh, emphasizing those as as being core values for our group certainly does help. There's there's no question about that. But um, beyond that, I. I'm, I'm seeing unity amongst progressives of a, of a sort that I don't think any of us have seen in in a couple of generations.
0: Yeah, we saw an um, enormous turnout at the Women's mm-hmm. March. I believe it was 160,000 of us that turned out. Indeed, um, it was amazing. There was a strong turnout at SeaTac the night the immigration mm-hmm. ban was signed. Uh, keeping people motivated and turning out consistently is also a challenge. As they say, this is a marathon and not a sprint. Uh, one of the things that uh, a lot of people stress is self-care. What are some of the strategies that you both uh, employ to kind of keep people fired up and turning out?
2: Um, I guess um, right now we've just mostly been relying on everything that's coming out of the White House every
0: day. (laughs) Yeah, It's sort of a self-perpetuating monster, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> that
2: alone is it, it keeps people motivated and engaged and willing to show up but we do recognize that this is um this is sort of, we're in this for the long haul for the next two years or four years or however long it takes and so um we're trying not to overwhelm ourselves personally sure. and, and and our membership with with too many demands on their time and energy and we're very open about look if you can come and join us and join the team and be more involved we need you and we will Welcome you. Um, we are volunteer run. It, it's, it's just a matter of um, who's got the time and, and can put in the time and energy. Um, but if you, if all you can do, and I say, oh, because it's already a lot, if all you can do is make a phone call once a week or every other week, that's great too. We need everyone to be engaged in, in at whatever level they feel comfortable and that they can dedicate themselves to.
0: So both of you live in the district that is is, uh, represented by uh, Pramila Jayapal, um, and I understand that she is having a town hall event coming up. Uh, When is that and what are your plans for it, Aaron?
3: Uh, so the, the town hall is, is going to be held on Monday, March 6th at 5.30 p.m. Appropriately enough, it's going to be at Town Hall Seattle, which is in in First Hill. It's just off of, of Madison. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, my, my plan is to to be there. I'm going to be there with uh, some questions for the Congresswoman and also words of thanks for, for all of the tireless work that she's engaged in on behalf of, of not just Washington 7th, but all of our great country.
0: Well, Aaron Bredhorst and Iga Kozlowska, I want to thank you first of all, for the work that you're both doing with Seattle Indivisible and also for being on the podcast. Thanks to both of you.
2: Thank you very much for the opportunity to, to talk with you about Seattle Indivisible. And um, hopefully we'll stay in touch and keep you updated on on everything that we're doing.
0: Absolutely. So then we'll talk to you then soon. And that will do it for this week's Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I thank you always for listening. Uh, and as always, please do hit me up with your feedback, your thoughts, your suggestions. If you'd like to be on the show to talk about your group or home district or know someone who would, the email address is Washington Indivisible Pod at gmail.com. Again, Washington Indivisible Pod at gmail.com. State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative Inc. Thank you again to Iga Koslowska and Aaron Brett. Thanks to the strangers, Sydney Brownstone. And as always, thank you for listening. We'll see you guys next time. Bye.